Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through about aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like us on Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to share some exciting opportunities. And also, please feel free to share this with people who you know who will also find it of interest. Today, I have a very special privilege of welcoming back a, a guest who's been with us before, Rabbi Avi Baumel. Rabbi Baumel is a thoughtful and gifted communicator who we're privileged to have back on Inspiration from Zion for this latest episode of Ask the Rabbi. Rabbi Baumel was born in New York and graduated from Yeshiva University with a BA and MA in medieval Jewish history. He has rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva University and from Rabbi Zalman Nechemia Goldberg. Rabbi Baumel is also an alumnus of Yeshivat Har Etzion here in the Judean Mountains and the former congregational rabbi of, of the Shari Tzedek congregation in Vancouver, British Columbia. Since 2014, Rabbi Baumel has served as the rabbinic representative of the chief rabbi of Poland in Krakow. He spends two weeks a month helping the Jewish community of Krakow as it undergoes a remarkable revival. He has learned Polish as well, which helps him to interact with the Jewish community, but also with many non-Jews, including many Christians, with whom he interacts and for whom he holds regular classes. Rabbi Baumel made Aliyah to Israel in 2003 with his wife and five children. He is a highly regarded teacher, author, lecturer, and a licensed tour guide. And he lives in Efrat next door to me. Rabbi Baumel, it is a pleasure to have you back uh, with us in general and as we celebrate Purim today. Happy Purim. Chag Happy Purim. Thank you, Jonathan, for those kind words. Very nice uh, intro. Well, it's great. And I'm excited to, to have this conversation with you both because today we're celebrating Purim. And I want to unpack that. I think a lot of our Christian friends know clearly uh, about the book of Esther. And, and I mean, they're all unique, but I think that this, this one has, has its own uh, particular resonance for Christians. Um, but, but I wanted to start off with something that's kind of weird. When I was a kid growing up, I remember reading Esther, celebrating Purim, and thinking the whole story was kind of a failure because it, 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 it is an, it, it's about intermarriage. You have a Jewish woman who's marrying a Gentile king. King, not king, it doesn't really matter. And that bothered me for a lot. Now, I've come to terms with that. But before we start talking about it, maybe in more broad and, and specific items, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I once wrote an article called uh, Purim, the Anti-Holiday. Ah. Um, it, it, it's missing all the great ingredients we have for the holiday that we, we normally expect. 
salvation for the Jewish people in Israel, prophecy, uh, Jewish un- unity com- coming together, you know, all God's great divine hand intervention. All this is missing on Purim, uh, which makes it very strange, but perhaps the mo- most unique of the holidays. So, okay, that's a good point. Before we talk about some of the details of what's unique, and there's a lot, it's also interesting because it's a really very short book. It's only 10 chapters, doesn't take that long uh, to read it. Last year, we were sitting on our balcony outside in our new apartment. We have a shared balcony overlooking Jerusalem, which also led to an interesting conversation about how we were to observe it last year. We'll come to that. But you know, you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home, you're an Orthodox rabbi, you've raised your five children in an Orthodox home. Talk about some of the traditions, both growing up yourself, and how you raise your own children that make that that, that are unique or make the holiday meaningful. Well, Purim is, uh, as opposed to, I, I think every other holiday, maybe Passover, but um, it's the outside of Israel experience, and we call it the the exile holiday. It's a holiday which teaches us that even when you're outside of Israel, if you you connect to the Jewish community, if you pray to God, then it's God, maybe not in the most overt way, but nevertheless, God will still find a way to to bring salvation to help you uh, uh, when you have your challenges. And one of the ways that that the, the rabbis who kind of created this holiday um, reflect this idea that, that it's not typical and that it's not, we're not sitting down and having a meal with meat and, uh, and bread like a typical holiday or Shabbat is this idea that, uh, well, you know, hey, what if you dress up in costumes and what if we, uh, if we drink, which is not normally what we do during a, uh, a festival? It, it really caters to our, you know, the physical nature of our existence more than the spiritual nature, as if teaching us that sometimes you're going to be surrounded by less spirituality, no temple, no uh, uh, specific uh, uh, spiritual guides. And nevertheless, even in your physicalities, you need to find a way to kind of navigate back to God and back to connecting to your roots. So when I was a kid, um, that's exactly what Purim meant. It meant giving out foods to friends, um, I remember my grandmother used to make these, they're called shalach manas, these, these pla- uh, packages of, uh, with the cellophane. She made this huge baskets. She made like 30 or 40. And I used to, my Purim day was, uh, was going to deliver them. And I, I was always hopeful that I would get like a dollar tip or something. I would make a lot of money. <laughs> very exciting for me. Um, but it was a way of, uh, of collegiality, of, of, of camaraderie, uh, of giving to the poor. And very little time in the synagogue, like you said. You know, we read a uh, ten chapters, and then and then we're off and we're out and about and singing and dancing and uh, rejoicing um, with each other. And I think that that's my my memories of, of Purim, like you know, hanging out with family and and delivering things. Yeah. Which is cool, and I want to talk about that, but it's also as you're speaking, uh, and again, I'm hard-pressed to think of it, anything else, but it's the holiday, the one holiday that we're doing something, that celebration, overtly in public. Our streets become parties. Um, at the beginning of the month of Adar, we, we see, or, which is the month in which Purim is celebrated, 
we're, we're, we're seeing and hearing people out singing and dancing uh, a couple of days ago. I was on the light rail in Jerusalem um, in the evening, and it was packed with teenagers who were literally jumping up and down and singing uh, and, and shaking the train car. So, so I, I don't think that we do that. And, and you're, it's a great point about it being a holiday of, of or in the diaspora, because the only one that maybe comes close is um, is Passover. But Passover is about the exodus. It's it's the beginning of our coming back, right? But so, but this is firmly entrenched in Persia. Yeah, I like the idea that um, that there is this some some strange kind of uh, external uh, extroverted um, joy that encompasses uh, the whole community. It's not just for your family. You know, usually holidays are we get together Shabbat in particular, and then holidays, family comes together, very set up, very organized, and perm. Anyone who's going to come in, and I'm waiting for someone to come in through the door and dressed and crazy, and you know, asking me if I want to drink or coming to to share some uh, some joy, and um, it's a kind of way to uh, to just kind of let it out, express that that you know there were tense times in our Jewish history in our collective consciousness, and sometimes the rabbis say it's you know we need to release it. Um, in a healthy and uh, safe way, but nevertheless, in an unusual way in the, in our Jewish calendar. And as long as we're talking about that, um, that's one of the, the whole unusual is, is the, is one of the essences of Purim, right? That everything was turned upside down. You want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah. Uh, this idea of turning upside down comes straight out of the Megillah and, uh, the book of Esther. Read- uh, Megillah Esther, sorry. When you right. read the, the story, um, f- first of all, the name Purim, right? The holiday is called Purim because it's the day that Haman, Haman chose to, to, to kill the Jewish people. So it would be very, it's very strange that we keep the day, we keep the name. You'd think we'd pick a name. Why? It should be called the holiday of Esther. Or right. Mordechai and Esther holiday, or God's salvation through, you know, uh, covert mechanism. Whatever new name you want to give it, give it the name. Don't give it the name. Imagine if we called the holiday Vansi, you know, like, uh, you know, when the Nazis decided to get together to kill all the Jews. Oh, that's our holiday. You know, that's absurd. Well, I was going to say something because you're, you're the rabbi in Krakow, and wouldn't it be perverse to take the anniversary of the uh, um, uh, of exactly that the, the the conference when the rabbi when the rabbis excuse me that was a not even Freudian when the when the Nazis formalized their final solution if we were to turn that into a holiday or or call it or call another thing the holiday right right so so the rabbis said no 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 we're calling it Purim we're 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 going to turn it on its head and that's the name. That's the idea that when the Megillah says uh, in Esther, it says, V'nafochu. actually, the day that the Jews were about to be destroyed is the day the Jews will have the upper hand. And this idea takes hold very strongly in the holiday that we're kind of using what would normally be tragic and would normally be, you know, uh, forces against us. And through God's intervention, even if we don't see it, it turns the forces towards our side. And, yeah. and that is a theme that, that runs through Purim, that we're kind of using those, uh, those ideas and flipping them on their head. 
So you just also then segue to something I wanted to ask you about. You said, even if we don't see it. So what's missing from the book of Esther? God. We don't hear his name anywhere. Why is that? How do we have, how do we have a book that's part of the, of what we call Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible that doesn't even mention God? Yeah, that's a great question. And that question has been asked for, by rabbis for, for centuries. And it's a little bizarre because every other book of the Bible, God is not only in the book, but God is the, the, uh, the main actor. God's the protagonist of the story. The Jewish people are God, you know, are the subject to which God's, you know, actions uh, save and guide and, and bring to the land. But in this story, not only is God's name not doesn't appear, but it also doesn't seemingly exist. You know, even when they they pray and they fast, it, they're not, it doesn't even say that they're praying to, to God and fasting to God. It's a very strange development. And, I, and I'm sure it was done intentionally. And, you know, the first chapter of the Megillah is about a fashion show. It's bizarre. Or a, a beauty contest. Right. You know? Which we just um, had here in Israel. Well, the first and second chapter, right? Uh, and you, you're, you we're brought into the, the courtyard of a Persian king. And then we're taught about beauty contests. It says you might as well watch it on Netflix, right? That, that you know, <laughs> everyone's dressed up and all these women. And all these women are going to sleep with the king. I mean, it's very crude. It's quite lascivious. It's the opposite of the pristine, pure, puritanical Jewish uh, notion of, you know, modesty and, 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 and the like. And the Megillah says, yes, this too. This is part of our diaspora existence. When we live in the diaspora, we are forced to, to know what's happening in the king's court. Because if we don't know what's happening in the king's court, then maybe a guy named Haman will come up and maybe because he'll raise curry favor with the king, he'll end up wanting to destroy us. So we better be aware of what's happening, which puts us in a strange position. And that creates within us this idea that we need to be politicians and we need to have favor and we need to have kind of political action committees and all these things because God isn't, you know, it's just, very visible and, you know, going to shake the foundations and the earth when, when things go wrong, because we're not in the land and we need to, you know, make our way back there. But until then, we have to take other channels. And the, the authors of the Megillah said, okay, how do you live your life when God is not overt? Wow. That's excellent. Now, by the way, of course, God is overt everywhere but as you said earlier sometimes we just don't see it we're, or, or we're not or we're not aware of it but that's great what you just said because really it does speak to the whole thousands of years of diaspora jewish experience yeah so that point that you made is very good because the rabbis say what do you mean god's name isn't in the megillah what do you think the word hamelech means now hamelech, ah. hamelech in hebrew means the king so obviously the king is referring to Achashverosh. No. And the rabbis say, uh-uh. In certain contexts, the king is the only one and true king. And therefore you need to read the Megillah on different levels. And when the king, you know, realizes what's happening or changes his mind, it means that it's an Achashverosh who's uplifted by the word of God. And therefore he kind of 
is going in a different direction and helps out the Jews. So if we look for him, he's there. That's excellent. By the way, you, you, I, know, I know we've defined it, but just because you're using it, I want to call, uh, just call attention. When you're referring to the Megillah, the Hebrew is, the, it's, it's a scroll, and, and we, we typically look at it as a scroll the book. Yeah, we call it in English, the book of Esther, but when Rabbi Baumel is speaking of the Megillah, that's the, that's the, the book of Esther. But as we read it in the synagogue on Purim, like today, we're reading it actually from a handwritten scroll on parchment. Yeah, that's because it was a letter that was sent out. And in ancient times, the letter was rolled up. And like Megillah Migulgal, it was a rolled up scroll. And uh, that's what was read, uh, you know, like like you see in all the movies. Yeah. And uh, that, that's what we, we call the Megillah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. In addition to inspiration from Zion, another Genesis 123 Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. I want to jump into some of the text. I have two two verses that I want to highlight and then and then, and then discuss some others with you. But one that jumps out to me always and and it's been now for years um especially because of the of of the fact that the story takes place in ancient Persia, which is today Iran, and we specifically now have this looming in fact, existential threat from Iran today that, that occupies all of the news uh, cycles here in Israel at different, at different times. I, I actually, I love the verse, but I also can't help but wonder, and, I, and I've never asked anybody this, it happens to be verse six, chapter six, verse 13, which if you take out the colon in between, is 613 as in the number of... <laughs> biblical commandments that we observe as Jews. And I'm reading from, from a, a, a translation of, by Rabbi Steinsaltz, which I've shared with a lot of Christians before. But verse 613 says, Haman related to Zeresh, his wife, and to all his supporters, everything that had befallen him. His wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the progeny of the Jews, you will not prevail against him. Rather, you will fall before him. That always blows me away. First of all, how on earth they're thinking that then, 20, what, 2,500 years ago? And and how that is, to me, it's a comfort still today. When rockets are flying from Gaza, when the Iranians have a very clear threat that they want to load a nuclear warhead on uh, at, the, at the, the top of a missile and shoot it here and call Israel the one-bomb country, what's what what's what's contemporary for you what's first of all what's significant about that uh historically and and as as the scripture that it is and then why is that so significant today yeah i think it's also part of our uh up uh upside down um uh holiday and upside down story <clears throat> the greatest wisdom in the whole megillah 
comes not from the Jewish people and not from God's prophecy and not from any uh, uh, priest, but from the enemy's wife, you know, the Eva (laughs) Braun. Wow. Right. She, she and her, uh, and her, uh, um, and her cohorts say, um, wait a second. You didn't tell us this was the Jews. The Jews are, are special. Now, What's interesting as well is that he didn't, they didn't say, if you, wait, if you started up with the Jews, then you're in trouble. <laughs> it's only if you already began to stumble, oh, then you can't, you can't, you can't defeat them, which, which is a blessing, but is also somewhat uh, more complicated. Jews can be attacked and are vulnerable. But there is some kind of feeling that if they do rally and bring God on their side and gain the upper hand, then you're in trouble. Now, that wisdom to come from the mouth of Zeresh, Haman's wife, um, is a one of these prescient truisms that that appear, you know, through the uh, through the Megillah uh, for us till this day. Excellent, and I, I love how also he sees it like. Call her the Ava Braun of uh, of of Persia. That's that's uh, it's correct. important to see it in 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 our contextual time. You know, when we think about this ancient time, you know, it's hard for us to imagine that this was the the border of of a genocide that was about to happen. Right, this was the precipice. And uh, um, when 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 Mordechai rips his clothing um, and trying to find a way to tell Esther in the king in the kingdom that. She's going to sit in an ivory tower and all the Jews are going to be murdered. Um, we need to apply it to our contemporary understanding of, you know, 20th century uh, near genocide and any threats that when there is uh, an Iran that says uh, we want to destroy Israel and wipe them off the face of the map. We need to take them very seriously. So uh, it, it resonates and reverberates in our minds. Yeah, thank you for that. The other, the other verse I wanted to highlight before I ask you it underscores an earlier comment of mine, um, where, okay, Esther's already married to the king. This whole intermarriage thing is taking place. Her uncle Mordecai says, yeah, yeah, go out, you know, try out for the beauty, like you said, for the beauty pageant and she gets picked. And right. And, and, and that's nuts. And then. All of a sudden, the, 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 the story starts to unfold and we, we hear about this bad guy named Haman and he wants to kill us all. And, and she's in this place as close to the king as anyone could be. And, and in verse four, uh, chapter four, verse 14, uh, again, using the Rabbi uh, Steinsaltz translation, uh, Mordechai says to Esther, who's feeling a little, it seems like a little ambivalent about, well, you know, what am I going to do about this guy, Haman? Mordecai says, for if you are silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And then he says, who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time like this? Now that, especially that phrase, such a time like this is something I hear all the time, especially among Christians. And it's sort of like a, it's sort of like if we were Jews and Christians together and had a big banner, that'd be a great phrase to put on it for such a time as this. 
What's the significance of that? When, when Esther, when Mordecai, the uncle who tells her to go try out and become, you know, try out for being queen now, now is sort of with a big yellow highlighter saying, this is why you're there. Yeah, that's a great point. And my rabbi once, uh, uh, gave a class about this and said that this is the, the point of uh, transition in, you know, this is the upside down of the entire uh, Jewish version of the Megillah. Until this point, Esther is passive. Esther's thinking, okay, you know, maybe something, you know, Mordechai is in control. He's planning. He's kind of setting her up because in ancient times, when you live in the diaspora and there's a non-Jewish king, you need to do things, make sacrifices that are uncomfortable and um, somewhat um, ambiguous with regarding to Jewish law, right? If she was married, yeah. if she wasn't married, she's going to sleep with the king. She's not going to sleep with the king. You know what? You have to sacrifice. That's what Mordechai understood. Now, Mordechai himself gets into trouble with Haman. And then the king says, okay, Haman, whatever you want. And Haman says, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And, and Esther is still being passive. She, Mordechai said, go speak to the king. And she said, I can't. You know, what am I supposed to do? I, this is who I am. I'm, uh, you know, I'm stuck here. And then Mordechai says his one line. And this one line changes the course of history in which Esther becomes activated and she then starts commanding Mordechai what to do. Once she gets the point that there are times in our lives where we've been prepared for this without even knowing, and now it, we need to act because we've been pl- placed in position. Now, sometimes it's a Mordechai that places us in a position. Sometimes it's God that places us in a position. We don't know why we're in specific positions until the time has come to act. And then we make a, a fateful decision. Are we going to, you know, understand the, uh, the events that are surrounding us? And are we going to take that, um, and, and change the course of our lives and maybe others as well? So that's a very that's powerful right. moment. Right. It is. And actually, the way I like the way you said it, because if it were a film, that would be sort of that moment that everyone realizes something's changing. Right. It's, a, it, it's well said. Yeah, and and I, you know, she's sitting there. By the way, she's part of a harem, right? Yeah. We generally don't think about it either. We kind of think, oh, Esther is the princess. Esther is the bride. She's the queen. She gets to decide. And then we learn a little more. The king decided to get some more women. So we we realize that maybe she doesn't have as much power, and we know that she has to use her guile. And she has to use her, her deception and she has, she needs to really step up and figure out a way to, uh, to, to plan to deceive Achashverosh and Haman and win the day and still remain obsequious to the king to try to continue on. This is, uh, the makings of the great heroine that she is. Right. And, and, and then it leads to, I, I didn't, I already closed the book, but a couple of, a couple of li- uh, lines later where she says, okay, I'm, I'll do it. And now you need to pray and fast and I'm going to pray and fast. And as you said before, of course, we're praying and fasting to God. This is not just a random, it's not a cleansing fast. Uh, but, but it doesn't say that. But it's clear that here's the Jewish woman who is in the heart of the diaspora 
yet she doesn't lose focus on who she who she is and her identity and and who who we're accountable to. Yeah, and remember that Esther herself writes this book. It's Esther and Mordechai. They they're the authors. You know, it's interesting. The Talmud discusses that they they were kind of peddling this book. They said they sent it out. And they said to the rabbis, we think this is a book that for the ages. And the rabbis like, mm, <laughs> no, it's, we're not so sure. It doesn't really have God's name. It doesn't really uh, fit, fit the bill of the Bible. And uh, they said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is our fate. This is our destiny. When we're outside the land of Israel, this is what it's about. And if we're, and not using God's name is also part of the story. Not to say that we live in a godless society, but we live in a society that, that God doesn't appear in such an overt manner. And that too is a lesson to be taught in the Bible. And that becomes a very, very important lesson, especially, you know, in, in lieu of recent uh, history of thousands of years. Well, so I, you, you're just elucidating something that I never really thought of, but you know, not far from where we live, Rachel, the ma- our matriarch is buried and she's buried separate from all the others. And one of the traditions, the, the ways we understand that is that she's there on the road outside of Bethlehem because, because she's going to provide comfort to those of us who, when we're leaving and going into diaspora. And now this book, you know, it's fascinating because it's it's written in between the destruction of the first and second temples. I don't know that that means it's foretelling the destruction of the second temple and our much longer diaspora. But we now have the privilege of thousands of years of Jews reading this and deriving that comfort by being by seeing that, yeah, even as as bad as things get, um it it's uh it, it, there's hope and 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 even when god and i actually want to come to it because of your rabbinic position now even when god is not visible and and you you sitting in krakow probably close to ground zero of one of the biggest tragedies to befall us as a people and how does Purim get, I never thought about this, but does that give it any extra resonance when you're in Poland on Purim or, or from your understanding of history, how Purim was observed in the, during the Holocaust? How can it not? How can it not? Um, it's impossible not to see the, the parallels to uh, near destruction and evil people and an evil Evil ones in, you know, familiar Nazis, but very evil people in, uh, in Krakow itself. And it's in Poshov, as uh, many people who saw the Schindler's List are, you know, familiar with it. And this is a charged city with history. And, um, it, it's, it's always, um, evident. Um, we know we're an hour from Auschwitz. We know that. There were 60,000 Jews in Krakow before the war and a few thousand after the war. We know that there's old synagogues that are no longer used. And it means that it's so much more powerful when we have a parade and celebrate through the streets of, of Krakow on Purim night. 
and yeah. we sing and we dance and the police are there and the non-Jews are, are there and some join us and some applaud us and some are looking quizzically. And <laughs> we, we make it, you know, we make it clear that, um, Netzach Yisrael lo yishaker, you know, the, 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 the story of the Jewish people will never die and that, that we will somehow always focus on, um, on our future and on rebuilding and on revival. And even in the darkest place, there's a time to, uh, to sing and rejoice. And that's why Purim is all the more significant. How amazing. I would love to see and maybe even participate in that celebration in Krakow one day. Uh, You're very, welcome. Very, You're invited. <laughs> right. Very different from the diaspora in which you and I both grew up, where, where our celebration was no less public, but maybe missing a, 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 an ingredient. Yeah, growing up in New York, it was a small kind of uh, celebration and not really affecting the larger community, um, the Jews doing what the Jews do. Um, in Krakow, in Kazimierz, in the place that used to be so Jewish and now is uh, trying to claw its way back into uh, the community, it makes a very strong statement. And uh, I'm happy to say that each parade has been successful and has been um, appreciated by the general community. And uh, it's a reflection of the positive relations that we have with the general community and with the church and with the Christians who are some are major supporters of uh, a return of Jewish life. Um, some less so and uh yeah. um that's that's yeah. a very interesting thing um thank you for that i want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the genesis one two three foundation this year we have been going out all throughout the judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism it doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at Genesis123 dot co slash bless a soldier that's genesis one two three dot co slash bless a soldier and when you do you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people please join us i i highlighted two of the verses that for me were resonant well it, it if you're, you're teaching a class today, and it's a class mixed of Jews and, and non-Jews, and the non-Jews are particularly uh, Christians, what 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 would you want? What verse would you want to highlight? You took some of the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that uh, once again there is a it's a subtle underlying, perhaps even criticism of the Jewish community. Um, the rabbis in the Talmud are, don't hold back from criticizing and trying to say, 
you do, you are in the diaspora. And first of all, make sure that that's where you're supposed to be. So say, oh, well, we were kicked out and saying, well, what happens if you're able to return? Mm-hmm. And the question is, uh, when Mordechai is introduced, it says, Ish Yehudi, Hayab Shushan Habirad. There was a Jew who was in Shushan, the capital. And the, the rabbis comment that actually the capital is Jerusalem. Oh. And um, you meet, need to be very careful if you're calling Shushan your capital. And this tension served throughout thousands of years that are, are we saying that, uh, you know, New York is the capital of the Jewish, uh, of Jewish life, or uh, is it that we can return and start to rebuild? So that idea that was Mordechai supposed to be, you know, in, uh, in exile at the time, was he supposed to be in the diaspora or is it time for them to start coming back? And certainly that makes a very, very strong p- parallel to what's happening today. You know, today um, we have an interesting um, uh, celebration uh, because we are not in, in diaspora. Some of us were luckily to be in Israel. We're not in the diaspora. We're living in Israel, but we're not necessarily in a completely redemptive period. We don't, I don't, I look out my window. I don't see the temple, right? Wow. I don't uh, see God's overt well, I would argue that maybe I would, but nevertheless, the idea of God's overt hand uh, is not, there's still problems, there's still terror, there's still, you know, we're still in this struggle. And therefore, for us, um, there's double meanings that are going on when we celebrate Purim here. We've made it here. We're able to look at the people in the Megillah and say, well, we heard the message. And when we invite other Jews to join us and uh, we send this message out to the world, that um, we're on our way towards rebuilding a, a, a temple that um, all the nations of the world are going to be able to acknowledge, and that's going to bring a certain peace throughout the land. So I, I would focus on uh, on that um, that verse. I like the uh, the, the verse of um, when Mordechai is uh, once again an unbelievable uh, uh, upheaval or or. Uh, turn of events where um, Haman is uh, thinking that he's going to be the one led on the horse of the king. Yeah. It's his idea even. And then the king says, okay, my hair, you know, quick, go and do this exact thing to Mordechai the Jew, because he spoke good on the, to, about the king. And therefore the one who thought that he was going to be uh, in the king's favor is forced to, you know, take around his, uh, his most, uh, his biggest enemy, which Mordechai is wondering why I'm your enemy. I don't know, but, right. um, that story is very powerful. Um, and, you know, Mordechai returns to his job. He's, it is not so affected by it. And Haman returns, uh, realizing that, uh, it's the beginning of the end. That's the beginning. Right. Exactly. Excellent. I'm glad you highlighted that. That's a, that's a real significant one. Uh, that's a, that's a very, there's one more verse that I like, um, uh, which, just reminds us of the entire story. The Megillah's over. The story is, you know, Mordechai and Esther apparently live in Haman's house. Um, the Jews have um, defeated their enemy. In fact, in the ninth chapter, it says people, some people convert to Judaism. They see, the, you know, the hand of God. Um, there's a widespread peace and joy. And then comes chapter 10. And chapter 10 says, 
And Achashverosh, the king, put a tax on, the, on all the people of his kingdom. And life goes on. And that's an unsettling idea. Once again, reminding us of the diaspora existence, that the best thing that could happen is not to get killed. That's not a great way to end the holiday. Exodus <laughs> is about miracles and about wonders and about, you know, taking the steps towards and, and Shavuot is about the, temp, the, the, the Mount Sinai experience. And, and Purim is about the fact that we weren't murdered. That's a, that's a, a sobering message that, you know, probably gets some Jews to say, well, I think we need a drink. which by the way also in that diaspora experience is also is is a cliffhanger for the next such experience right that we're not that wasn't the last time 2500 years ago Uh, and it's it's not the most recent um the holocaust being that we've struggled even even our, our 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 blessed existence here in the sovereign jewish state of israel has not been without Tremendous sacrifice. And maybe that's not a great example, but, but the, if you use Purim as one, and that's just one, and, and, and the, the Holocaust as another bookend, there's a lot of that suffering in between. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, challenge. And there's a lot of uh, uh, there's suffering. Um, there's the realization that um, uh, we're not meant to uh, live in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we're meant to work on each other and on the world around us. And, um, and sometimes that entails sacrifice. Um, and that is a, is a message that reminds us of what our purpose here is on earth. And we're not, our purpose is not to, to spend all our days dreaming of the time of the Messiah that, that we won't have to work anymore. We won't have to function and we won't have to struggle. Um, you know, Israel means struggle. So uh, maybe, maybe there's there's a point here of us trying to, you know, understand that that it's a complicated existence, but a very meaningful one. And the more that we uh, you know challenge and overcome our challenges, the more meaningful our experience is. Excellent, excellent. Uh, ne- nevertheless, and you alluded to it uh, earlier, not in the same phrase. Purim is one of those holidays that we can surmise, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. And we do have food as a, as a piece you've mentioned, drinking. Uh, l- l- let's just, because that's come up a little bit, someone's coming in your door and is going to have a drink any minute. Why, why specifically on Purim is drinking involved? You know, and, by drink, and by, by drinking, saying, we're not talking about sweet tea. I, I preface this by saying that, that Jews on the whole... We're not a drinking people. Um, we'll have our wine for Kiddush. We'll have, you know, it, it, we're not prohibited from drinking, but it's not like uh, that's a, you know, a symbol uh, or a characteristic of the, of the, of the Jewish people. We're not drunks. Um, and yet there's one day out of the year, only one day where the rabbis say, you know what? If you're going to choose any day to get drunk, this is your day because it is a day to engage in an upside down upheaval of what you normally live your life. Usually you're measured. Usually you have your senses. Usually you're sober. Today is a day to kind of let go of that a little bit. And that's why people are coming in and sometimes drinking 
I personally fail in this, uh, in this <laughs> test. Uh, I'm just not a drinker. It's, it's not going to work for me, but, um, you know, there, there are a fair share of people that are, are going to come in, you know, to the door and are a little bit tipsy. Um, and you know, the rabbis say that uh, when you're a little tipsy, secrets can get out. And maybe that's uh, another message that, uh, that the rabbis were saying about this day that, uh, it's a day where secrets need to be, uh, kind of somehow leaked, um, to try to, uh, get closer to people. Um, and in the community. So it's an interesting thing. No question. Well, and a lot of, and a lot of secrets, um, or at least some pivotal ones, uh, in, in terms of the book of Esther, you know, Absolutely. Respected, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I just happened we, to be a Jewish woman marrying the king, but exactly. I'm not telling anybody. Exactly. And if, uh, and, and we, we are a, 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 an eating people and we continue to eat, uh, um, on this holiday and we're going to be preparing. Yep a huge festive meal where we're probably all going to dress up and we're all going to have fun and we're all going to sing crazy songs. And maybe we'll even have a play. Um, depends what my wife came up with. She's our creative director and um, we will, um, we will rejoice and it should be a lot of fun. It's going to happen yeah. in a few hours. So, so what, so talking about food, just maybe, which is probably a good way to begin to wrap up the conversation. We do eat. There's a, and each, each holiday has its own kind of food traditions. But one of the food, I want to highlight food traditions, not that we're consuming, but you alluded to it earlier. And I love that you shared the memory of, of your, of you delivering the, the, uh, food, the Mishloach Manot, the, 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 how, the, how is that translated into English? Um, gifts? Um, food, food gifts, food yeah. gifts. Okay. It's like, it's like a celebratory package that you would order online today, you know, but that wasn't the case when we were growing up and that's, but, but that's not only part of what we do. It's actually considered one of the bi- biblical obligations that we have rabbinic, rabbinic obligations. Thank you. Why, why is that? Why, why are we giving out food to other people uh, uh, celebrating? Yeah, it's a good question, and but it should always be um, paired with the other um, rabbinic commandment, which is double as important as the first one. Okay. So if the first one is that we should give a gift of food to a friend, a gift of two foods to a friend, the second commandment is that we should give two portions to a poor person. Right. So the the, the gifts to the poor should be a hundred percent more than the gifts to someone who has money, but, but we need to do both. And I think the rabbis were saying the following, which I think is such a beautiful idea. We surround our holiday of Purim. You know, certainly there's one focal point with this, which is reading the Megillah in the synagogue. The second one is, is having this wonderful meal, this joyous meal in the house. And the rabbi said, how can we expand our meal to all members of our community? The answer is, okay, take a piece of your meal and deliver it to your friend. And when we do that, we're basically then our tentacles have gone throughout the community. And now we're all celebrating a meal at the same time. And that idea is very powerful. And the rabbis say, however, there are going to be poor people who can't do that because they don't have enough. So make sure that they have not just a, a, enough, but more than enough so that they can have a sense of joy, not just, you know, that they 
will survive another day, but that they're truly happy. And the rabbis explain that whenever anyone poor comes to your uh, door on Purim, you don't ask any questions, you open up your wallet and you give them money. So th- right. these two mitzvot are very, very important. And um, it certainly aim- makes for a, a very creative day because different people give different types of gifts to, uh, to all and, and create uh, all these interesting types of elaborate uh, gifts of, of food. And uh, it's a fun day. Yeah. It's a fun day. And right outside our windows, we've got, we've got people running around now delivering their, their food packages to, Music to one playing, another. Running through kids, the city, yeah. kids dressed up in costumes. It's sort of, which is a whole other thing, but just part of the festivity. But also one of the things that's really interesting is that in, there are people who we know who are who are poor and the, the, and the, and we don't want to embarrass them so people will give money through a nonprofit and those nonprofits take care of it but there are also some people who we know who sit outside the shopping centers here in, in, in the town where we live and 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 as people are running around festive giving out food to their friends and their kids are are, uh, are are all dressed up. We're also making sure to stop by and give. Well, I was going to say a couple of dollars, but in this case, shekels to to those people as well. Um, I, actually, I want to interject on that point. People listening who want to participate, albeit that will it will be done retroactively to Purim uh, because they're listening today as we celebrate. But anyone who wants to participate in that to help bring joy and festivity in honor of Purim uh, can do so through our website, love.genesis123.co um, is the link. And, and we're going to send what, what a lot of uh, Christian friends would call love offerings. And we're going to enrich the celebration retroactively. So I invite people to, to join us um, in Great. that. Um, with, with that note, let's go back to you, Rabbi Bamel intellect, teacher, you, you in, engage with a lot of Christians, specifically in Poland. What's the special message today on Purim for n- non-Jews in general, but, but Christians uh, who are listening in specific? I think that the, the message uh, of Purim is of brotherhood. And uh, there's always going to be some evil, uh, e- evil person trying to kill. Um, and whether that person is killing the Jewish people for being who they are or Christian people for being who they are or uh, Muslim people for, you know, it, it doesn't make a difference. Hate is hate. And what, what, uh, what fights against hate is, um, is unity is brotherhood is coming together. And the holiday by virtue of, you know, sometimes coming together means let's all pray. And I get it. And we do that most of the time, but sometimes coming together we should do in a in a less spiritual. We could do it a less spiritual way to bring in all the others who want to share in our our joy and and find a way that we can, you know, link our brotherhood, our our humanity, our our, our monotheistic uh, uh, connections, and you know, it could it could have a, me- a resonance for um, people of all faiths. That uh, if if it's about someone trying to kill us in a totally racist way for no reason other than, you know, they don't like the, that we're a little different. And then what uh, gives us strength is coming together, giving out our, uh, our meal to others 
sharing together and, uh, and perhaps bringing a little more light to the world. Beautiful. I love it. Um, and, and I'm sure as people are listening today and in subsequent days, that, that, a, that will be a meaningful and, and um, cha- an appropriate challenge uh, for people to, to engage, to create some action behind the, behind the book. Um, Rabbi, Rabbi Avi Bamel, it is always a delight. I get to see you across the hallway a lot, but, uh, but it's a great privilege to have you join us here again on, on Inspiration from Zion. Thank you. For, for doing that and your great insight. It was a pleasure meeting with you and schmoozing and wish you a happy perm. And let's go uh, have fun. And, and you, yes, amen. Um, let, me, let me just conclude by, uh, a couple, with a couple of announcements. First of all, we've been doing something really fun the last couple of months, um, engaging people to share this. And, and, and thank God people really are. The number of downloads has been really quite um, humbling. So we've started something a couple of months ago that the Genesis 123 Foundation is offering a special gift. I call it from Jonathan's bookshelf. Every month we're, we're tracking who's sharing this on social media and drawing a random person uh, who's, who shared one of the episodes each month and giving away uh, a special book this, this uh, month. We've got another really great one. So I want to ask people to comment, share, and um, at the end of the month, we're going to draw another uh, winner at random. I also want to specifically thank our podcast sponsors. Um, first of all, the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. Anyone who needs anything from a greenhouse and happens to be within a reasonable distance of Culpeper, Virginia should go there and get it. And if you're in the area and don't need anything, go and thank them and give them a hug and, 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 and show appreciation for helping make programs and conversations like this possible. And also thank you to our, our, our good friends, the Coyne family, for their meaningful sponsorship. Like all of the programs of the Genesis 123 Foundation, Inspiration from Zion is uh, funded by donations. So I'd like to ask everyone to please consider uh, joining to help us continue the dialogue and to build bridges as we do. And this episode, coincidentally or not, is sponsored by a Christian friend named Esther, who, who uh, specifically emailed a lot of the conversations we, we have are, uh, are based on input from some Christian friends. And this woman said to me, hey, Jonathan, can you t- teach about the book of Esther, for whom I'm named? So we want to thank her for that sponsorship. And anyone who would like to sponsor a future episode in honor uh, uh, or memory of a loved one or a special occasion or a biblical namesake, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. As always, we love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions uh, like this as well, specifically for these Ask the Rabbi programs. Um, please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else, wherever you are in the world. I pray that you and all your loved ones are safe and healthy, and I send my blessings from to you from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you. Hallelujah.